I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe that every human being's greatest desire is to be understood. Yeah, absolutely. That people underestimate the power of clear and concise and um, valuable exchange of information, that that is the savior of us all, and that is because of each one's neurotically engaging desire to be understood. If most of us could be understood, the world would be a significantly better place. Hello, 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 and welcome to Robert Young's Bright Fame Shining, the podcast. At the beginning of every podcast, I'm like, today is a special day. Well, <laughs> that's because every day is a special day in this space to be doing this work where creativity meets wellness. But today is particularly special for me because the gentleman sitting uh, to my right, it's hard to explain, but I would say that in terms of impact in my career, um, advisement, um, writings and support, I, there's nothing like it. I've known this gentleman since I had uh, locks and went by the name Black Cat, and maybe before that, in fact, when I was a dancer uh, touring the UK and Europe, and I've basically known this brother probably my entire creative life. And um, uh, to this day, he remains um, one of my greatest supporters, and it's it's a very proud thing. Um, the gentleman sitting beside me has done quite a few things in his career. Uh, in his space as an executive at CBC, uh, his career and his rise here and the things he's done here is just un unmatched in terms of impact uh, when you're talking about impact in media um, and CBC radio and how it's grown exponentially um, this gentleman I think is a driving force for that and then uh, kept climbing uh, into different roles beyond just the creative sphere um, more powerful I would say executive level um, roles that help to curve and grow and expand the culture I think here at CBC with the work that you've been doing. And um, if we go before, I, I can speak on about that forever, <laughs> um, but then we go back, so far back, that this gentleman wrote my first bio ever, first professional bio as a creative, as an artist ever, when I was a kid, more than 30-something years ago. And then additional to that, when I went away to the States to, to go after my dream of being uh, creative on the public and world stage, I would say, um, when I returned to Toronto, I wrote um, one of the most magnificent articles about the, the prodigal poet returns. And uh, I, I tell you, all this time and all these years, whenever I'm stuck, this is a gentleman I call for some really clear, honest, direct advisement that I can trust. And ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Nicholas Davis on the podcast with us today, Nikki. So good to see you, brother. Good to see you too, Robert. Uh, I think your words are your super kind words. I appreciate them. Uh, I think uh, my... Um, there might be an exaggeration of my, <laughs> I don't think so. Of my, um, of my, of my, I guess of my reach in this corporation. But I do, um, I do remember you doing spoken word shows in Toronto in the early '90s, and I'm. Uh, it's funny because um, for the people who know the person who brought us into this studio, I remember in the studio recording here in at CBC. Um, I asked him, um, "Hey, do you know who this guy is?" And he's like, "No." And I go, "This is. Do um, you remember? You know, all true spoken." Because I know this person used to go to them all the time. Wow. And he goes, oh, 
that guy. Because <laughs> I knew you when you had dreads. Yes, <laughs> you couldn't yes. recognize your dreads. So that just talks about your own impact in this city and for, for a very particular audience in this in this city of Toronto. Um, you were well-known and uh, and you were well-loved and uh, and people really loved your work. Mm. And you had a really huge following. Like people used to go to all your shows and, 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 and that guy, this just random tech who's in the <laughs> studio is one of those guys. So that shows you about your impact as well, which I thought was really powerful too. You know, the the thing about the podcast that I've been in, in love with with this idea is, you know, as a creative, the difficulty is how do you, a creative that cares about the impact of their creative, I should say, uh, they're not just doing it for art, art for art's sake, but mm -hmm. they're actually want to make impact in the world in a positive way. And, you know, when I look at, my my contribution here people think i i i and there's actually no i you know if it wasn't for collaborations and support of people like yourself i don't think there would be a chance for us to grow and to expand in fact just sitting here on the podcast it's ironic that you started with what you started with of how we knew each other originally because i normally say this is the bright yeah. portion of the podcast where we speak to i'll ask you a question how do we know each other? What do you remember? And so you've described it so so eloquently. I want to make sure I say this now. We're going to go deep into this with you all. But th this podcast and the fact that we have nuanced it so specifically to, um, to my heart, the place where I have a lot of love and contribution in terms of creativity and wellness is, is because of this gentleman. Um, the podcast, when I first thought about doing it, was very broad. It was very open. It's like, well, creativity, not creativity, wellness is for everybody uh, kind of deal. So anyone will listen to this podcast. And this gentleman was kind enough to advise me to narrow my focus so that I can serve uh, an audience more, uh, more powerfully. And I'm forever grateful for you in terms of that. I really am. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. I mean, I'll say this about art. You said something that to me was really profound, and that's around um, the eye and how people sometimes do art for themselves. But, but for for true creatives, and I mean, and I and I'm not pretending I'm a true creative, but I love to be creative and have been pretty much my whole life. I do it always for others, like, and I and I want to do it with others because yeah. when you do it with others and for others, um, there's something about the end product that mm. that that when you 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 touch it or you see it or you hear it or you visualize it, whatever it is, you have to do whatever type of art it is. Um, it just does something for me to see someone else enjoy this thing that we've created, and I and to know that you're doing something to impact somebody, you make them feel or have some type of emotive quality out of that work i mean for me that's what it's all about it's not about like if i wanted to create art for myself i'd become a musician and pick up my guitar or yeah. go run you know and, and just play for myself in my house or whatever but even musicians and and i love music too the best musicians are always thinking about others and they're taking their own lived experiences and then the world that they live in and they're trying to find a way to share with others so others can get something out of it, not yeah. so they can just throw it out there. So it's just living there so others can get something out of it. And the, and the music and the art that it lives with us all the time, mm -hmm. it's because it evokes something like a memory or an emotion that, that draws us to it all the time. And, 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 that's, why, and that's why it works for us. And, that's why it's, and, and I know the artist who made it isn't thinking about that, but we're allowed to interpret that art any way we want. And I yeah. think that's part of the, well, it's, for me, it's part of the, the process. Like, like I, I just wrote something the other day um, that's going to be featured on Basketball Canada's website. And I remember I'm trying to write it about this man who was the very first um, black uh, basketball player to play for Team Canada. Okay. And so I'm trying to write it. But, but I don't want to do a history of his career. Yes. I'm really more interested in, in 
in what motivated him to actually go on that journey because he didn't have to. He was he was an amazing track star. He was an amazing baseball player. He was he was amazing at everything. He was an amazing student. But he chose this route, and he chose it because it was the route less traveled. And yeah. so when I think about that, and, and I'm really trying to get at that, and it was so hard to get him to share with me because, like you just said, like he's not thinking about himself. Like he didn't he didn't think, well, I want to be. He just this is the thing that he felt could have the most impact on the people around him and support and help the people around him get through. You know, growing up in Canada in the in the '40s and the '50s when you know. It's hard being a black man, you know what I mean? And, and this was the thing that we found his solace. And so it was, but in that sauce, he brought joy to other people too, who went to cheer him on, watch him play, support him through his career, help him in life. And so he's 84 this year. And oh, so wow. having that conversation with him was, was amazing for me. Like, you know what I mean? And what he gave to others. And that's what art is. It's what we're giving back to others. And so I thought, I thought what you said about the I and being selfish, it's, um, yeah, I, I just there's no value in that for me. You yeah. know, what I mean, it's really about the collaboration and the and and, and doing something that's going to help others. And even though that might not be our intent, it's often always the result. Yeah, you know I mean, yeah. You you've delivered to me a, a beautiful two for one. So we're thinking about the the idea of contribution mm-hmm. that you, I, I speak of your impact on my career, and I know I'm I'm not alone in that. I know mm-hmm. that. There's a number of people that feel that you have contributed in that way, and and I was saying I was in a meeting earlier today <clears throat> with a NGO that wants to serve the artist community, and what I try to clarify to them is that you can give artists a bunch of advice, and you mm-hmm. should do this, and this is the direction. Artists need support. Yeah. They need someone. They need advisors. They need people to advise them on the business so they can remain in the creative space um, to help them grow, to expand, to how to engage with media, how to connect the dots, how to bring attention to what you're doing. And you've been doing that almost forever. Additionally, <laughs> I um, one could um, look left and see a world filled, their purview filled with all the things you do in a helpful manner and, and think that that's it. But when we look right, what we know is you're a writer yeah. and, and um, a magnificent writer that I alluded early on to. You have written my first professional bio. I want to talk to you about that, about what you do, not just today, but how did you enter into to that space? Was that always the drive? Did you always want to be a writer or did something else, uh, was there some other passion and you, and you felt, I, I'm just curious. I'm just super curious. No, it's funny because we've known each other for a very, 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 very long time and I don't think you've ever known my motivations for the work I do, for the writing I do. Um, That's why we're here. No, no, it, no, <laughs> no, it's amazing because you're right. Like I, I prefer to be in a supportive role than I do in a creative role. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but the create the creative role got me to a place where I could actually support others. Like you know, what I mean, like that's like, like I, I'm not one for the spotlight. You know that. Like yeah. I, I don't I don't care to be out there and everybody. You know, I'm just not interested. I'm way more interested in helping people. But but writing happened for me by accident. Like I was not a writer. Like so, just so you know, I went to university and I studied mathematics. Oh wow. Yeah. So I studied math at York University in Toronto. Um, it's the thing I've always been good at is math. I've actually been, I've actually not, a, I was never a very good writer younger growing up at all. Like, hmm. so it's a true story. My first year of university, I, you know, I'm taking math at university. So, but you have to take these electives. Like, yep. like, so I had to take a, a at that time it was called the humanities. 
So in the humanities field lived English and poetry and all those other courses. So I said, let me just take this crime fiction course because how hard could it be? I'm just going to read some books about crime. And I love solving problems and it's, it's going to be cool. No problem. So I hand in my first paper. I think it's beautiful. I can type. It looks beautiful. It's black. It's black and white. It's well typed out. It's just a beautiful piece of art just to look at it, just the way I presented it. And it comes back, and it's almost all red. Wow. Like, just red. And at one point, you could tell the professor stopped marking the paper. Oh, wow. And she gave me an F. Wow. And so I went to go see her, and I said, okay, like, what's going on? And then she wrote underneath the F, are you illiterate? Wow. Now, I don't think she was trying to be mean. I think she was asking a very honest question, having read my paper. Wow. And so I went to talk to her because me and this teacher had a little cool rapport. So I know she wasn't trying to like throw a shot. She was like asking a legitimate question. And she said, well, it looks like you've never written an essay before in your life. Jesus. And I said, I had to think back about it. I probably hadn't written one since probably grade nine. <laughs> because... When I went to high school, and this is aging myself, so I apologize to anyone who may be offended who's in my age group, but when we went to university and school, we only had to submit our best marks. We didn't have to submit our all of our marks. Wow. So I only submitted my math marks. Wow. And like my accounting mark and my like gym mark. I didn't, you didn't have to, when you applied to university, you only had to apply, send in your six best marks. Wow. So... Of course, I had an amazing average. I got to university, no problem, because it was all math courses that yep. I sent in, right? But I, because I played basketball on my high school team, and my, my grade nine teacher was the basketball coach and my grade nine English teacher. And at my high school at the time, if you failed one course, you couldn't play basketball. Oh, wow. You couldn't play any sports. If you failed one subject, you couldn't play any sports. So for whatever reason, he thought, without asking me, just assumed I wasn't a very good student. Although I was a very good student. I got my grade eight average was 94. Wow. But he just assumed I wasn't a good student because I'm a black kid taking these advanced courses and said, don't do any work in this class. I'm going to pass you regardless because I don't want you to fail because I need you to play basketball because I was a guard on the basketball team. Oh, man, that is just crazy. Well, the crazy part was he made sure he was my English teacher all through my high school career. So I never had to do any work in English. So I actually had not written or even read a book for English probably since grade nine. And it never really dawned on me because here's me doing my math and getting 98, 97, all, you know, and doing really well. And, and so when that teacher said that to me, I had to really take a step back and go, you know what? You're right. I don't can't remember the last time I actually wrote an essay. I, I, I couldn't remember. And so I could have said, well, I'm not taking no more humanities classes no more. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I could have done that. But instead, I, I took it upon as a challenge. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go take uh, a grammar course, yeah. which I took at school. I went and took another poetry course. Like I signed up for a poetry course or another humanities course. And I volunteered at the student newspaper and I volunteered at the student radio station, school radio station, because I wanted to practice writing every day. And those things would make me, force me to write every day. The environment. And so I put myself in a place because I didn't have to study math. Math was not hard for me. Yeah. But this was hard for me. And so I, I, I made that a, an, a, like I did that intentionally. Um. And within two years, I was the editor of the school newspaper. Wow. Of the Excalibur York, the first, the first black male to ever be the editor of that magazine, that, that newspaper. And at the time, it was the largest student newspaper in Canada. And I became the editor in two years. And, and I'm not saying this to say anything. I'm just saying this to people out there that if you commit yourself to something, you know what I mean? And I, and I did it. I wrote every single day for two years prior to that. Mm. Like every day I wrote something, every single day, because I wanted to be better at writing. Yeah. 
And and I started to read. I I read started reading a book a week, and to this day, okay, and and I went to university many many years ago, and to this day, I still read at least a book a week. Wow, you know what I mean? But it was that 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 conversation with that professor that got me on the path to writing. And I never thought I was a good writer. It was other people say, man, I like the way you write. You write like you speak. Mm. Like you don't like you're not using all these big huge words. And I'm going, well. I want to make sure that people understand what I'm writing and get out of what I'm writing. I'm not trying to impress people with language or impress people with clever turns of phrases. I'm trying to impress people with telling other people's stories. Mm -hmm. I think other people's stories fascinate me. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something that people can learn from it. So when I always wrote from a frame of interesting people doing interesting things for very interesting reasons. And that's the frame I tried to write everything from for a very long time. And that's, and that's, and that's how I got into writing. And then, I don't know. People just kept telling me you were good at it. And when I graduated from university, instead of working on Bay Street, which I did during my summers, you know, working for AGF Financial and the TD Dominion Bank. And uh, when I graduated, though, the three jobs offered to me without applying were all journalism jobs. And so I got to pick. And so I I chose to be a crime reporter for the Jamaican Daily Gleaner, which was an amazing experience being a yardman myself. It was really nice. And they had an office in Toronto, the North American edition of the Jamaican Daily Gleaner. Uh, and I had an amazing, an amazing editor who just really honed my writing skills. You know what I mean? Like she just, she was just excellent at just looking at my writing and saying, okay, you know, you're writing a, a crime story, right? <laughs> yeah. You're not writing a sonnet. Because, <laughs> right. you know, I'd taken all these poetry classes. Yes, and I had yes. colorful words. And she said, no, you're, you just need to tell me what happened <laughs> from very, from a multiple different perspectives. You know what I mean? And that always stuck with me. And she was an amazing, an amazing, an amazing editor. And she really honed my writing. So when I got to, finally got to CBC 10 years later, you know what I mean? They're like, man, you're a pretty good writer. And I'm going, really? Because I don't think of myself as a good writer. Mm. I think of myself as a storyteller. Yes. And I think I can tell good stories. And I think if you tell stories well and you share people's stories and their journeys, I think people forget what they're reading and like the, the writing style of it and just get caught up in the story. And I think even with the, the, wrote, the, the piece I wrote about you, The Prodigal Son, to me it was an amazing story to tell. That's why I wanted to write it. And I was actually honored you let me write it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I hadn't seen you in a minute because you've been gone. <laughs> and I just thought, hey, <laughs> can we just do this? I'm and I had a dummy. platform. I'm not you know? a dummy. I, you know, you, your um, contribution was, was undeniable. I mean, it's, 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 it's the reality. And the funny things about you, writing how you speak, you know, there, I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe that every human beings greatest desires to be understood absolutely that people underestimate the power of clear and concise and um valuable exchange of information that that is the savior of us all and that is because of each one's neurotically engaging desire to be understood. If most of us could be understood, the world would be a significantly better place. You know, you say that, and it's funny because one of the papers I wrote in university, I ended up taking this course called uh, Race and Racism. Mm-hmm. We had to read Franz Fanon. Okay? Mm-hmm. So I had to read The Wretched of the Earth. And to me, it was an amazing book. Like I, I don't know, for those who in the audience who've read it, it, to me it was like, I call it the blueprint to the revolution. Like mm-hmm. I thought it was like, if, if everybody who... 
wanted to like uplift themselves and create a better opportunity for a better space, better space for themselves, they got to read this book. It's amazing. But the language in which it's written in, like the language in which Fanon wrote that book in, the people who it's for, because the, 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 to me, the blueprint for revolution had to be done by the grassroots people. Mm-hmm. That's who that book is written for. It's written for man like me and you, Finch man, mm-hmm. man from Woodlands. Like it's written for us mm-hmm. to get out of our situation. Yep. But it's written in a language we can never understand. Right. Like, if I don't have a PhD, no comprehension. I don't know what the hell fan is talking about in this <laughs> book. You know what I mean? And I remember reading that book, and uh, my teacher at the time, a guy named Livy Fazano, he was my professor at the time. <clears throat> excuse me, he said, whenever you come across a word you don't understand, just write it down. And then you'll go back and look up the word, then you'll reread it, and then you'll get a better understanding. Well, I had a book around 20 pages long of words that were in the wretch of the earth that I didn't even know what they meant. Wow. Remember, I'm a guy reading a book a week at this time. That's right. I'm well-read, and, and that's the language fans written. So to me, it was a, it's, a, it's to your point, like as great a book as it was, it didn't, to me, meet its intention or purpose, which was to help uplift a people, black people who were suffering at that time in the 60s, yeah. because we couldn't understand it. And, and, and yes, I mean, we couldn't understand it, but the effort it would take to understand it was so great, okay, that you didn't, you gave up on it. And people didn't have, it wasn't accessible. Yeah. And so that actually helped shape me writing too later on in my career where I said, I'm never going to write like Fannin because here's this great piece of literature that this great book that could help everybody, you know, but everybody can't access it because of the way which you wrote. He wrote it to me to show off to his PhD friends in university and as opposed to writing it for the actual people who he meant to write it for. That's right. And, and so clarity is so important. And, 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 and to be like in a place, especially cause I, you, I want, People didn't understand Fannin, mm-hmm. and I don't think Fannin cared about that. Yeah, I think Fannin just knew that he had these great ideas, but he just—I don't think he was—he had the capacity to write it in the way in which me, the common man at the time, could understand it. You know what I mean? And so, I—it took me great effort to get through the book. I had to write down all those words and go back and read. But when I reread it, knowing what the words meant, I was like, "This is this is masterful." Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. It's a—it's yes, yes. a work of art. This book. Yes. But geez, no one's going to understand it. And so I, I, I take that cue when I started writing, seriously, that I'm never going to be in that space. The irony of what you're saying, when I, when I was doing the poetry show, um, I was a very complicated writer as a young man. <laughs> you know, When I wrote things like If I Were a Planet, it was like universally international. I stand within a microcosm of a microcosm that's mistaken itself as a macrocosm based on materialistics rather than spiritualistics that bring you down to earth rather than out of space. I mean, uh, but I know exactly what it, I didn't know what it meant when I wrote it. Right. I think spirit wrote that. I had right. to go back and reread it in the morning. Like, oh, I didn't even know. <laughs> right. And then I was on when I put on the poetry show back in the day. It was a really theatrical performance. As you well know, there was four poets in the beginning, then there was an intermission, and there were four poets at the end. And every now and then, I would do like a, a I would perform myself just to keep the, the, the balance of the show going, right? Mm-hmm. If someone had a really, really bad poem about a bad breakup and the energy in the room was down, I let people sit in the emotion of that, and then I would try to balance it by picking them up. Sometimes it was words, and sometimes it was poems. And on occasion, I would perform myself. And I told every poet, that we would do it this way. You're going to do your second best poem first. Right. Your worst poem, not worst, but your third best poem in the middle. 
uh-huh. and you're going to end with your best poem. I told people that all the time. So I entered on the stage and I said, okay, well, I'm going to perform. And people are like, oh, you're performing tonight? And to your point, I was like, yeah, university tonight. Give them all that. And then I walked out and then I wrote this poem that was a throwaway poem. Mm-hmm. It was very basic, you know, super direct. I I, I, <laughs> I discarded it like it was like it was nothing. But it was an it was idea. Your third poem. <laughs> yeah, it was my third best poem. I'll just do it in the middle. And then, you know, and 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 normally I wouldn't take up the time of this, this okay, radical noise, black music, illegal sales district, black market. Stock market crash, Black Monday. The bad guys wear black. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so basic. But when I finished, for I am the one. Basically, it was a nuanced poem speaking about how the use of the word black in the English language always refers to some negative connotation. And how is it that we as people that identify as black could possibly maintain our self-worth and value when every time we hear the word in the English language, it refers to something negative. And I said, instead of moving away and fighting it, go further down the hole. So I said, for I am the one that brings bad luck, black (laughs) cat. Now, I used to only be called cat. And that night, my name became Black, Black Cat. Cat yep. Standing ovation, people going crazy. I was crazy. there, by the way. Were you there that night? I was absolutely there that oh, night. And man. I'm going to tell you, <laughs> there was people talking about that particular poem mm. for months and months and months afterwards. Not just days. Because remember, I worked in a yeah. magazine, a Black Arts magazine at yep. the time, and people were raving about that freaking poem. Like, and, and it's in people's minds. And that's and I am. Black cat. Yeah, you're right. No one called you cat after that. No, everyone called you black cat. Black after cat that. from that on. The company <laughs> became Black Cat Entertainment. Yeah, and and it speaks to the idea of, you know, we complicate our lives, man. Mm-hmm. We really. I'm at a stage now in my in my life where I I feel like I have spent most of my life complicating it. I have to be honest with you and honest with our listeners because this is about mental health and well being in the creative space and. I spent a lot of time complicating my life, I think. And when you narrow it down to the simplicity, at the end of the day, if I am to be in service, then the goal is to to simplify. The goal is to clarify. And uh, not in a dumbed-down way, mm-hmm. but in a, in a very careful way. And I think that's what I always loved about your writing. I wanted to ask you, you know, I think we're moved through the bright section, I, I want to move on to Famed and ask you to explain to the audience from a, a professional standpoint, mm-hmm. um, um, and concise and clear, of course, <laughs> exactly what you do. And the reason why I'm asking in terms of like, you know, your executive role, what are the roles, the titles you've had throughout your career? What did you do in the most significant spaces um, in fact, you know what, for fame's sake, I'd love for you to mention what you think is your masterpiece that you've contributed to this point in your life wow. in the world. That, I think, is the question I really want to ask. Well, I will tell you my journey mm. in this space, and you, as the audience, can decide what you think is the masterpiece. Because okay. I don't, I don't kind of look at things that way, you know what I mean? Like, like so for me, I started as a, as a reporter. Okay, and I I came to CBC because that's when I think my most significant work. I mean, even though I love the work I did at Word Magazine, I just thought we had a beautiful magazine with some amazing writers, some really talented, talented, talented people 
just trying to make something work in this space without the resources. But and we just I thought we just did a wonderful job at Word. So you did. You know, I just I love that magazine. I love everything about it. I love the people I met there. They're still my friends. You know, we created a great family there and I just love that. But when I got to CBC, I started as a national reporter. I worked on a trial called the Allen Eagleson trial. Mm-hmm. That was the first trial I worked on and that was um and Al Eagleson, Eagleson, for those who don't know, was a, a sports agent who um, in the 70s was actually stealing the pensions of all the old hockey players. Mm. And, of course, nothing was done about it. And all these old retirees used to complain about it, complain about it, complain about it. But then he made the mistake of messing around with Bobby Orr's pension. Oh, wow. And Bobby Orr at the time was the greatest hockey player of our generation. Yep. You know what I mean? At that time. And you don't mess around Bobby Orr. No. And so he ends up going to trial. He ends up spending 10 years in jail. But I covered that trial. It was a big deal in Canada. I mean, we were a big hockey country. Yep. And I was on that trial every day for like four or five months. Like it was a long time. And I thought, you know, um, the guy, there's a guy who was fronting all the pieces named Bruce Dobick and really good sports writer out of Calgary. And, um, and I used to just go collect an interview and talk to all these old hockey players and gather all the tape for him and, and then, you know, kind of just, here you go, Bruce, here's what we have. And, and he, you know, he allowed me to just interview who I want to interview and talk to who I want and just bring him the stuff back and we would choose which ones we we're going to use them, uh, for the radio program the next day. And that experience of hearing all those great stories to me, you know, I think we played a real role in helping win the public over to the side of those old retirees, not Bob Yore. These people no one heard about. Like, you know, like people didn't know about them. These old hockey players from the 60s and 70s. Who This guy just basically just eviscerated their pensions. And these mm. people were living in poverty. They couldn't even take care of their health. Um, and and these guys provided, you know, to me, entertainment. I mean, to Canadians for a very long time. And, and to me, we're very integral in my upbringing because I grew up in Montreal. Mm. And I used to go to all the Canadians games because my neighbor used to work for the Canadians. He used to get me and my brother's tickets and we'd go. So I had a real relationship with the sport and those players. And for me to know now 30 years later that they're starving and they're because this guy stole their money. Yeah. And I think those that coverage that we did at CBC at that time to me played a really important role in helping those people and helping get the public to understand why it's important someone like Alan Eagleson goes to jail. Yep. You know what I mean? And he ended up going to jail. He spent 10 years in jail, which is great. So I started there. After that, um, I moved into current affairs, and I worked on this program called Metro Morning, which is a local morning show in Toronto. Bang, bang. And, uh, yeah, and at the well. time, <laughs> at the time when I got started on that show, it was probably, you know, not not a well-listened-to show. Probably did seven or eight in the ratings. Um, it was about, to me, you know, and, and when I, my boss who came in, um, at that time, a woman named Susan Margetti, who just recently retired, when she came in at the time, she interviewed all the people who worked on this show and was trying to ask us, like, what we thought about the show. Um, and so I had to tell her the truth. I didn't listen to it. And she said, how do you work on a show and don't listen to it? Because I was one of the associate producers on the show. And I said, because it's not a very good show. She said, what do you mean it's not very good? You're part of putting it together. Yeah, but I don't have a lot of say in what goes on the show. I pitch my ideas. They take them. They don't take them, whatever. But yeah. it's not, I have no real control over this three-hour show. And she said, well, what, do you, what don't you like about it? I said, well, it's, you know, no disrespect to our host, but it's 50-year-old white men talking to other 50-year-old white men about things that other 50-year-old white men are interested in. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a 50-year-old white man, so why would I listen to it? And she said, well, okay, well, what do you think we should be doing? I said, well, we live in one of the most multicultural cities in the world, Toronto. Yes. At that time, the UN had actually declared Toronto the most multicultural city in the world at yep. that time. I said, and when I turn on our local radio show, our local morning radio show in Toronto, 
I would have no clue. I live in the most multicultural city in the world. No reflection. And I said, so all we need to do is actually look and sound like the city we serve. Mm. And I said, if we just do that, very simple, look and sound like the city we serve, I think we'd be in a better place. And so this woman had maybe just met me two days before, said, here you go. That's your job now. Help us do that. The keys. And I said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so we embarked upon changing the show, the mandate of the show, the program. And we had a great team of people on the show who agreed that we needed to change. Even my host, you know, the 50-year-old white man agreed we needed to change. Um, and so we embarked on a journey to now, change What year are program. we talking about? You're talking about 2001, 2002. Wow, look at that. And we went on this journey to change this program. And so we got a lot of like real negative um, criticism from people who didn't want it to change. You know, this is the CBC. This is, this, this is what the show should be. This is what our shows are about. Um, and I remember... Um, there was an article written in one of the national in one of the national newspapers here in Toronto at the time, and uh, the title of the story, this, the, the piece was called Metro Morning. That's the name of our show, but M O U R N I N G, and they called it the dumbing down of CBC Radio. What we did, and and uh, I remember walking into work that day, and everybody was just down. Yeah. Downcast because it's front page of the national paper and everyone's talking about it. Everyone in our building's talking about it. And I just said, "Hey, do you guys believe in what we're doing? Yeah. Do you think we're doing the right thing? Yeah. Well, then let's just continue doing what we're doing. There it is. And let's just do the right thing. Like, like for those people who don't like it, it's probably not for them. And if you think about the people who are criticizing them, they're not reflective of our city. Yeah. I said, let's take our cues from the audience. Yeah. Let's not take our cues from our critics. Yeah. And so. We marched on forward, and I got support from my boss, Miss Margetti, who said, no, you continue doing what you're doing. And within two years, we became the number one radio station in Toronto. Ladies and gentlemen, listen carefully, right? Take your cues from the audience, not from the critics. Wow. Yeah, no, that's what we decided to do. And within two years, we were number one in the largest market in the country. Yeah. And within four years... We were the most listened to morning show in the entire country. Amazing. You know, and um, we just went, and all we did, we didn't, we, ch- we, ch- we chased the same stories. We were in the news of the day. We were agenda stuff. We did all the same things, Cover City Hall. We just did it through a lens of equity and inclusion, like thinking it. about our audience. And so instead of talking to white politicians all the time about things white politics, politicians talk about, we would take the issues that these politicians talk about and put them to the people. There you go. And say, okay, what do you think about housing? What do you think about the rent increases? What do you think about the, at the time we had these real interesting things going on around garbage and sanitation in the city of Toronto? Right. And, and, and stop talking to politicians and all the people who make decisions for people and actually talk to people who are impacted by these decisions. Yep. So, of course, we were the station of record. Right? We obviously did talk to politicians and we obviously got their word. But then we'd always take what they said and put it to the people. There you go. And so the show, so people heard themselves on the radio. Yes. They heard their experiences. We did something crazy, Kat. We played music on Radio 1 <laughs> in Toronto. Now, people who don't know CBC at the time, we had CBC Radio 2 and CBC Radio 1. Radio 2 was music. Radio 1 was talk and current affairs, news and current affairs. And we became the very first morning show to play full tracks of music, not just bumpers and like music. And we played a song every half hour. 
And that was one of the biggest bones of contention with the people inside this building. Mm. But our audiences didn't have a problem with it. Yeah. And so, like I told them, listen, when we get a complaint from an audience member about the music, I will take it so seriously. If I get a complaint from the people on the upper management, not really going to take it too seriously. And so we just stayed the course. Now, you know, after working at that morning show, I ended up going to be um, working in program development. Okay. And my job was to help all the local morning shows and all the local afternoon shows and all the local weekend shows and all the websites to look and sound like their communities. That was my job after that, working in program development. So you essentially, you were doing what we'll call um, reflective, and I hate this word because I don't like all the connotation attached to it, but diversity and inclusion work. Yeah. Before that was even a, oh, a catchphrase. I, well, we had no language for it at the time. Yeah. For me, it was just, like, I remember going to Winnipeg, and um, I remember getting out of the hotel, I was doing some program development work with the Winnipeg, Winnipeg Morning Show. And I remember walking from the hotel to the radio station mm -hmm. and looking at the people around me when I got there. And dude, I saw Filipino people. I saw a lot of indigenous people. I just saw this beautiful, you know, like consortium of people. Yeah. And I get to the station and I'm listening to the morning show because I'm there to review it. And I said to them, I would have no idea that indigenous people live in the city want yeah. to show. They, they make up half your freaking city. Yeah. Like, how's it, how, how's it possible? Like, we don't, and they were like going, well, you know, um, they had no reason. I, they didn't, they, at that time, they only had, I think, one indigenous employee. Right. You know what I mean? And I'm going, okay, but you don't have to have indigenous employees and Filipino employees to understand that that's the audience you're trying to grow and speak to. That's right. Like, like you have to go and get to know those communities, know those people, know what their interests are, know what they care about, and talk about it, Andre, and bring them on, let them hear themselves. And, you know, um, I just remember having that conversation. That was like in like 2010 or 11, whenever it was, I was wow. first out there. And and you listen to that Winnipeg radio station like just two years later, it's 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 a beautiful morning show. Like, yeah. And Marcy, who's the host of the morning, it's an amazing show. You know what I mean? And all they did was think about, okay, well, who is our audience? Like, yes. who are we speaking to? Yes. And can we make sure that they understand us yes. and that we're talking to them and with them and not about them and not above them, but we're actually we're on this journey with them about understanding our city. And you know what? I mean, and that was just my attitude around all the shows. And I think, you know, my boss and me, I know at the time I worked with a guy named Havoc Franklin and, um, you know, he's still one of my closest friends at CBC to this day because he just, he understood what we were trying to accomplish in that program development work. And I do think that, you know, him and a guy named Dave Downey, who the three of us, you know, I think they deserve a lot of credit for helping, you know, make, I mean, there's almost every radio show in CBC radio across the country is number one in their market, except for maybe two or three. Wow. You know what I mean? And I think that, that because those gentlemen, you know, were open to my way I thought and the way I saw the world and open to the ideas. And I think they had it in them anyway to begin with. Like, I think in their own hearts too, they knew that this is where we had to go. And I thought we were we were a great threesome, and we went across the country yeah. for nine years, you know, and helped stations all across the country, and just tried to help them, you know, be do the things they say they're supposed to do, which is actually you know sound like their communities and be their communities, and whatever that community might be, and that's different in Newfoundland, and it's different in Saskatchewan as it is in Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. They're, they're different experiences, and and how do we make sure people do that? And I think to this day, that's 
that's the the mandate of radio right across this country. See, and I think CBC Radio does really well because it does a really, really, really good job of mirroring its audiences and its programming. And I just think they do a great job of it. You, um, man, I'm so glad we're doing this. I can't even begin. Just so you guys understand, you you are accustomed to the podcast, those who watch it, you know, in a particular studio with all this particular lighting. We are inside one of the incredible uh, podcast studios of CBC. The Just know right now that there's a, an impromptu scenario. It m- might not have happened in recording on devices that may cut off. And by the time this is over, you might be only listening to audio looking at a black screen. But I assure you that magic will be will be spoken in, in this time. I, this is an important thing that I usually leave for a little later, but I want to move it right up until what you said. How? And when I say how, you're talking about Canada. Mm-hmm. You're talking about a black man. And this is for everybody, all race, all walks of life all people that are looking at the challenges of of their dream, of their passion, or just of their career and what they want to do and how they want to have impact. They want to have, they want to feel as if they're contributing, right? How do you find or where did you grow or build this foundation to feel comfortable to walk into a space where you are uh, an anomaly, so to speak, and truly feel comfortable speaking your mind? And how did you manage to present yourself in such a way that you got people to actually listen? <laughs> well, I don't know if they listened right off the top, but I will say this about, you know, and it's the advice I give to a lot of people. Because one of the things I'm most proud about at CBC is opening doors for others. And mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people, you know, you heard the technician. He said, I'm here because of me, mm-hmm. which is not true, really. Mm-hmm. But in the position he's in, it is true because I've advocated for him for years because I don't think people saw his talent. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. They just saw this guy who's really good at doing tech stuff and he'd do a live stuff. And But I don't think they saw his real talent, which is he's a very creative man. Yeah. And he's actually, to me, when you want to think about people who should be leaders of other people, they should care about people. Yeah. And, and, and my friend Gary cares about people. And I just don't think they missed that part. And so I've always advocated for him. And so when opportunities came, you know, I'm right in the air of his bosses and saying, hey, like, you got to mind. So, of course, Gary reluctantly stepped into leadership because he liked being in the field and he liked recording like he liked. But he's a great leader. Yeah. And you saw that young black man who's by his desk. You didn't see him when you go by his desk. There's this young black man who sits by his desk. Looks like he's probably 60 or 17. And I know Gary brought that person in to mm-hmm. teach him the trade. Mm-hmm. And he's in a position where he can do that now. Yeah. Like where he can bring in other people. And I know he's kind of, he's opening the door for us. So that's my, the thing I love about work. That's my most, the thing I value the most is opening doors. But in, in regards to your question around how do you get people to listen to you, um, my advice I always give to young people is, and I give it to everyone, I'm young and old, but anyone who wants to listen to me. Um, if you want to do this next thing, hmm. you need to be great at the thing you're doing right now. Mm. Because if you're not good at this, <laughs> Why would they give you a chance to do this? Wow. And so I was working with some, you know, and, and CBC researchers, one of the entry-level positions. And I was talking to a researcher today, today, want to know why they, how could they become a producer? Because they do all this amazing work. They do all this stuff and they got all this credit. And someone just wrote a big story about the work they did as a researcher. Oh, wow. And they wanted to know why they're not a producer. And I said, do you want to be a producer? Yeah. But then you need to be a better researcher. 
Mm-hmm. You can't because you did one research project that got some acclaim. All of a sudden now you think you deserve to be a producer. No, you kick ass in that producer business and you be the best researcher you can possibly be. And when opportunity is going to be a producer, they can't look away from you. Yeah. They can't. Like no matter what they think about, they can't look away from you because in the end, we work in an environment where you got to deliver. And so if you're going to sit here and complain that you're not getting a producer position and just complain, complain, they just see you as a complainer. And so if you decide I'm going to be – so whatever job I had, I made sure I was the best at it or yeah. at least tried to be the best. And never – like, and yeah, I could complain because you're being treated poorly. You're a black man. You're not getting good assignments. You're getting all the crap and people don't think you're good and you can't pitch ideas and those except in your stories. Yeah, but I'm going to be a better pitcher. I can, I'm going to be able to pitch stories better than you. Trust me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to work on my crap and I get better at it. And at one point, they just can't deny it that you're just better. Yep. They just can't, like they can't, no matter what they think about it, they just can't. Like, I remember when I was 15, I got my very first, like, real job, because all the jobs for them were all hustle jobs, you know what I mean? Like, yep. you know what I'm talking about. Yep. Like, yeah, yep. I'm a hustle, I'm a grind yep. all the time. But my first real job that I got an actual paycheck yeah. was at McDonald's. I was okay. 15. And so, remember, I'm this basketball guy. I mean, you know, I got this big reputation as a basketball guy. I'm a DJ. I'm part of Imagination Sound Crew. I'm this big deal. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden, I'm working at McDonald's. And people are laughing at me because I work a lot in the lobby. I used to wipe the tables, mop the floors, wow. take out the garbage, clean up the outside garbage a lot. And people just laugh at me. You know what I mean? Laugh at me. My friends, they come to McDonald's on Friday and laugh at me and make fun of me. And I'm going, you can make fun all you want. <laughs> okay? Because... Like, I'm getting paid, and I'm okay with it. Yep. But I'm going to tell you something. There's no better lot lobby guy than me. And I won't be here long because I'm going to be so good at this that when the next opportunity comes up, I'm going to get it. There and of course go. I did. I was lot in lobby for a month. That's it. After that, I became the – I worked on the cash. I did burgers. And, and by the time I was there for five months, I became the swing manager at McDonald's. Wow. Opening the store on Sundays at 16. I just turned 16 that summer. Okay? But I, everything I do, and I tell people, like, Everything I do, you have to decide. If I want to do this next thing, I better be really good at this thing before. Otherwise, why would you get – like, if I'm shitty AP yep. or not or a terrible researcher, why would anyone give me a job as a producer? Yeah. So, okay, and I'm saying that doesn't guarantee you're going to get the producer no. job. There's a much better chance. But I'll tell you this thing. You're going to be in a position where when one comes up, it's going to be very difficult for them to turn you down. Now, that saying – Okay, there was a fight and hurdles and proving yourself like like this is a story that hurts me every time I even tell it, it hurts me. When mm. I first got the job producing that morning show, this one woman, white woman, told me she cannot take orders from a black man and quit the show. Wow. And she was probably the best producer on the show. Quit. <laughs> and I'm like going, OK, well, <laughs> I guess we're going to have to find someone else. Wow. But, you know, but like, what do you do in, in that situation? Like. Like, that's hurtful. Yes, terribly like, so. They don't even know you. They don't even know what you're capable of. Terribly. They're making a judgment based on what? Nothing. 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 An illusion. But even talk to your boss who gave you the job. Your boss could tell you the reason why I gave Nikki the job because Nikki's got this amazing track record of doing all the good. No. Just no. can't take orders. You know, and so you deal with some of that crap. And I was the only person of color working on the show at that time as well. And I was younger than most of the people on the show too at the time you know what yeah. I mean but my boss saw in me and why I love this woman dearly you know and I'm actually going to her retirement dinner tomorrow okay you know what I mean no because no because she's amazing like she put faith in this young black guy yeah because she looked at his track record of work yeah 
She didn't judge me on, well, he's he's younger. He's like, no, she looked, I worked in the privates for 10 years before I came to CBC. So I already had a rich track record in radio and I already did some good radio stuff. I worked as a journalist, print journalist for 12 years. Like she knew all this. And so she's looking at my, and then she looked at my work at CBC. Like, mm. like she said, okay, this guy's done good work. And so, and I like that about her. Yeah. Like she, she actually went and did her work, her research. She didn't just give it to me because I wanted to do it. She gave it to me because she felt I was capable of doing it. And, and what showed her I was capable was the things I'd done previously. So I always tell young people, like, you know, when I bring them in as APs or researchers and they're working, I'm going, like, take some initiative and kick ass in this position. And then it'll be easy for me to advocate for you because I can say, hey, look at their body of work. And then you come tell me that they don't deserve this opportunity. And you know what? It always works out. So, you know, when you, when you talk about, about, about um, how I got where I got to, it was just trying to be excellent at everything I did when I was doing it. And I wasn't always excellent, but I tried to be. Yeah. And I think people saw that work ethic. They saw the effort. Um, you know what I mean? And then we delivered good results. You know, at some point we delivered good results. And right now, you're right, I'm an executive not CBC. I'm an executive director of equity and inclusion. I was before that, I was a director in news. You know what I mean? Um, and yeah, I've been afforded some, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm at some very powerful tables right now. There's no question about that. And I do have influence. And those people at those tables, the other executives I work with, I think they take me seriously too because they're very aware of my track record. Yeah. And aware of the work I've done coming before. So I can come to work and know that I'm going to be judged yeah. on the substance of what's behind me. And so I always say, make sure when you're doing something, you know, do it to the best of your ability. It doesn't mean you're always going to be successful, but people will see it, see that you're working hard and you're, you're doing what you need to be doing. You're busting your ass. And, and for people, if you're working with good people, yeah. we don't always work with good people. That's right. But good people will see that. And they will. And I've been fortunate enough to be around a lot of good leaders at CBC. You know what I mean? Very fortunate. And I, I, don't, I don't take that lightly. Like, I just don't take it lightly. Like, my boss right now, you know, um, you know, Barb Williams, gives, she's the executive vice president at CBC. Um, she gives me the latitude to do the work I need to do because she trusts it's going to be good and she trusts it's in the best interest of CBC. But she also knows that I'm taking care of people. Yeah. And, she, and that part she really can get on board with. You know what I mean? Because if we have happy people here, and people who are who are proud to work at CBC and people who are who know we're trying to make a difference and we're doing the right thing, then they're going to stay and then they're going to tell their other friend like I work in this place and I like it's a great job and 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 so we have to build that and she's I think she sees value in it you know what I mean and and I and I appreciate her giving me the space to do the work I do here. The the thing that interests me that that really sparked my ear a second ago when we were talking about your your new position, um, not new at this point, it's been for a hot second, but as I know you, right? Away from the creative space and more driving the culture, uh, I think to some great degree. You are, as long as I know you, your approach is alternative to mm -hmm. normal ways of moving through and yet so clear, concise, logical, it just makes sense. Obviously you have to see it win see the success oh, of, of it to understand yeah. how beautiful it is in terms of its simplicity. But let's go back to this catch phrase that's taken over and expanded, obviously, since the pandemic and, and obviously since the unfortunate loss of, of George Floyd. Um, I don't generally move in a political space in my head anymore. Uh, and, and I 
tend to not do that. I've considered myself a humanist for some time. And that if we more saw what we have in common versus what we have in difference, that the world would be a greater place. But that being said, this approach to diversity and inclusion, what is your take? What is your take on how it actually can positively impact those in need of that level of fairness and equality and being given the opportunity because they've done the work and yet at the same time, possibly, this might be a difficult question or may not, not ostracize those who have been in the position and are fearful of the idea that this uh, new world of opening the doors to talent from across the, across the board uh, could impact them in a negative way. It's um it's funny because when I when I took this job as the executive director of equity and inclusion and you notice there's no diversity in my mm. title I actually intentionally took that out because I find that the and you've alluded to it earlier the connotations around the word yeah you know what I mean when when you say diversity people just assume it means people of color and and for me that's not what my office was about it was about equity and inclusion and uh, and so what I'm trying to help people understand is we're trying to help um, make this a better experience for people to work here who come from a place of inequality, you know, who come from a place of exclusion, you know, and I think that's way more important to me. So I'm talking about people with disabilities. I'm talking about people from the LGBTQ plus community. I'm talking about indigenous people. I'm talking about black people. I'm talking about racialized people. I'm talking about people, South Asian, Chinese. And if you look at this company, you look at our leadership, okay? You just take a picture of our leadership. Mm. And I wish people had taken it like seven years ago, Okay. And you would say, wow, you would think no people of color work here. Right. But we have good representation. But why aren't they making it to the next level? Right. Like what's going on? And what I interpreted in my own thing, which I interpreted many years before I had this job, was that people don't see people like me and you as leaders of these particular types of corporations. Right. They just don't see it. Yeah. So when they're thinking about who's going to be the next director or executive director. They ain't thinking about me and you. Right. They ain't thinking about that brown man over there. They ain't thinking about the Chinese person over there. They ain't thinking about that person in the wheelchair. Not thinking about those people. Right. And I wanted to change that. Like I wanted you to, to change that because if we really want to have effective change here, it has to start at the top. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think it's and in our in our work, you know, started before George Floyd. Because like yep. I've been in this chair before George Floyd. Yep. But there's no question what happened with George Floyd accelerated this work. Yeah. But it also hurt the work. I can imagine. Please, please expound on that. Because people started to do it now for the wrong reasons, mm. do the work for the wrong reasons. And so once the furor died down and all the anger died down, and people started to forget about, you know, we got distance from the George Floyd incident. And now the economy's turned. Things are happening. All those jobs in EDI got cut. Mm. All the funding to those programs got cut. So then what you're telling me then is it wasn't really a problem. Mm-hmm. Or you fixed it mm-hmm. <laughs> during this time. And I believe neither of those two things are true. Yeah. Okay? And we know that because we can just look at a company and like to this day, like just the other day I was reading this article. There's this there's this website where they actually um out companies who do um, like panel discussions 
and don't have any performative reflective yeah on mm-hmm. re- re- representation on these panels and there is one about um the abortion debate that's going on in the states and what's happening and then Roe versus Wade being overturned all that kind of stuff right and um they had a panel of five men talking about it and I'm like going yeah, we still have need work to do. Like, yeah. how do you possibly put this panel together? Yeah, and you're ta- and of course, there's a million good reasons in their mind. Well, we tried to get this woman, but then she canceled, or you know, we don't know people like that, or this person is super influential. Seriously, like, like seriously, you're going to do a panel about women's reproductive rights, and you're not going to have a woman on the panel. Yeah, like, are you kidding me? Like, and for you to actually, and now remember. It's not like when these things happen, because I work in this field. I work in, I know what television, the job is. Yep. Someone pitched the idea. Someone greenlit the idea. Okay? And then someone chased the idea, mm-hmm. got all the guests, booked the guests. Then we taped it. And then someone watched the tape. And then someone said, okay, this is great. And put it on. So six or seven different hands touched that foreign deer. And at those seven different or six different levels, nobody saw a problem with a panel. <laughs> About women's reproductive rights, yep. and not a single woman was on the panel. No one saw a problem with that. Yep. That company needs work. Yeah, an understanding about equity and inclusion. You're now excluding the voice of the people most impacted by this decision. And what you're telling me is that there's no woman, when I see that, that has any type of critical authority to talk about this subject. Yeah, which is totally which is false. just nonsense. Yeah, like. To me, you're either lazy yep. <laughs> and you didn't want to make the effort. These are the five quickest people you could find. Yep. Or you're intentionally trying to exclude women from the conversation. Right. And neither of those two things are good. No. <laughs> okay. Neither of them. And so what I hear, and so that, and so to me, the George Floyd situation just exposed a lot of people for what they were, that they were doing it for the wrong reasons. Yep. And that when push came to shove, I have to make a decision. I'm just going to cut the EDI because it's not important. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I say... You know, I talked to my boss when, because like, we we saw the patterns happening, and then we 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 we're going through our own financial hardships at CBC right now too. And my boss said, "Now's not the time to eliminate that. We're now it's time to double down on it because the people who are going to be impacted most by financial constraints that come to, are going to be those people from those groups." Mm-hmm. And so she said, "No, we need to double down." and make sure we're putting in things in place to protect those people, protect those jobs because the bottom line is and, and th- there needs to be no more business case for equity and inclusion. Like, okay. we don't need to make the business case anymore. The best performing companies and corporations in the world are the most reflective and representative companies in the world. That's it. We don't need to make any more business case for it. Like, like it's, de- it's there. So, and for us at CBC, we're the public broadcaster. Our job is to make sure that all Canadians, since we pay taxes for this service to exist, need to see themselves reflected and represent our content. And that's not going to happen if we don't have the people who make decisions look and sound like the people who actually live in this country. Because it just won't. Like, like there's something I just saw the other day. Um, someone just sent it to me on my, I saw it on my uh, WhatsApp this morning. And it's, um, uh, I don't know if you watch basketball, but. Yep. A little bit. <clears throat> well, Denver Nuggets, Kate. Their center, who just won the MVP last year. Uh, no, two years ago, because okay. last year Embiid won it. He asked him who his, the best basketball players in the world were, historically. 
And he said, Larry Bird's number one. <clears throat> okay, the number one player in the world. And then he said, um, uh, the Dallas Mavericks, uh, Dirk Nowitzki is number two. And so someone writes underneath it, of course, and now it starts. Okay, so you're asking a white man, okay, <laughs> who he thinks the greatest players were, and you're surprised he picked Larry Bird? Okay, and I'm not surprised. And But they're trying to present it like it's racism. I'm going, this is not racism. Yeah, it's his perspective. And and he and I'm sure he's open for debate about it. Yeah. Okay. But how, like to me, this is the problem with the world we live in. That's you know right. what I mean? Like it's like I'm, I'm like, I have to laugh at that because a because other people don't know I have another life where I coach basketball. Yeah. I actually know Jamal Murray very well on the Denver Nuggets. <laughs> like I know him very very well. Yeah. Okay. And I know that this center plays on his team, Jokic, right? I've met him. And he's not what these people are pretending him to be. Right. He really believes that Larry Bird is the best basketball player in yeah. basketball. And there's lots of evidence that could support his case. Yeah. Now, I happen to believe it's Michael Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> and I have a lot of evidence to support my case. i on that one. Yeah. But if you talk to my stepfather, he's going to tell you it's Wilt. Yeah. <laughs> and he has every bit of evidence to support his case too. Yeah. We can all be... We can all have our own perspective on it. Yeah. That doesn't mean any of us are wrong. We just have a different perspective on it. Yeah. And that's the way I see he and I work. We need to bring in more perspectives. And and I think when we do that, bring in more perspectives and more um um like kind of widen our narrow view of the world. And we all have it. We all have our biases. Yep. All of us. Yep. You know what I mean? Like I'm a I'm a Jamaican man, okay? Yeah. And Yadman, very few of them can do anything wrong around me. You know yeah, I mean? Even yeah, though yeah. I know they do wrong things. Yeah, but you yeah. know what I mean? But it's my bias. Yep. You know what I mean? But we have to understand, though, that 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 the more perspectives, the more point of views that we bring into, especially in my world in news, we actually improve our journalism. We do not dumb it down like that article said. Mm-hmm. We improve it. Because when we have more choice, we have no choice but to be better. Like, when I was getting, when I started that show, Much of Morning, I used to get four, five, six pitches a day to fill three hours. Mm. Okay. And when I ended, we were getting four or five hundred pitches a day to get to be sorry. Wow. So you think, what do you think is going to make a better show? Me choosing between four and five hundred choices or me choosing between four and five? That's right. Well, I'd have, it would take, the amount of effort it would take to do a bad show with all that choice I had before, it would be greater than it would be to make a good show. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. Because just you have such choice. And that is why you need a whole range of different perspectives and, and, and a range of different opinions and a, at the table because it actually gives you more choice. So when we have a brown person pitching stories and a Chinese person pitching stories and a black person, we have way more stories to choose from. That's right. And we're going to have better stories. So we actually are improving our journalism. We're not dumbing down journalism. And, and for people who tell me that stuff, it'd be like the person who thinks that Nikola Jokic is racist because he thinks Larry Bird <laughs> is the best basketball player. No, he's not. It's his perspective. Yeah. And you can have yours, and I can have mine, and we can have ours, and we can agree to disagree, but we don't have to hate each other over it no. or demonize each other over it no. or call each other names over it. We can be cool about it. Like, yep. look how many times brethren like us would sit down and chat about something, and we, have a, and we would fight, argue, yep. cuss, carry on bad and then go out to night after and go drink two juice and, and, and call Probably it mom and we're, we're good. Yeah. But but that's what the world needs, but the world can't be that way because people are sensitive and people are whatever. But I read that this morning and I was thinking, Nicola Jokic is like, you're trying to tell me this guy, like, are you kidding me? Like, do you even know him? <laughs> like, because like, you're applying that with that tweet, with that message on WhatsApp and it's a wrong implication. So 
the work though to me because now it's about wokeness and when you hear that word it's a negative connotation like is it really bad to not call people names yeah like is it really bad to get someone's name right yeah like really like yeah. like is it being too woke to say like like there people are acting like being woke is some negative thing I don't even use that language to be honest with you. Because like, yep. I just don't use that term. It's not my language. We've never, as long as I've known you, we've never heard shit. shit no, that I word. don't. <laughs> no, but I'm just I use it because I saw it in the paper last week. You know that there's there's this um this whole campaign about anti wokeness. I'm going. So we're mad that people now are aware that if I say a joke about um I don't know Chinese people. Yep. That it's insensitive and that uh, you can't even joke around. It was a comic who said it, by the way. It's called the anti-woke tour. Okay. You know what I mean? I'm too broke to be woke is what it said. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's why he's just going to go on and be whatever. And I'm saying, fine, that's your cup of tea. Deal with it. But there's nothing wrong with me being aware that I may have said something that's insensitive or might hurt someone. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Like, I mean, knowledge. But why are we why are we criticizing people for it? But that's And, and that's the fallout, though, of George Floyd. Yeah. Like, whether we want to acknowledge it, I mean, people probably felt that way all the time. But another thing that came out of George Floyd is that people are now more open to speak up. Yes. And speak their voice, speak their truth. Yeah. And and that bothers people. Yeah. You I know? have this fundamental belief. I don't know if I've ever said it before on on camera, but I believe that the difficulty in how we are separated as people goes back to the original statement I made about everyone wants to be understood. Mm. People seem to be taken aback as to why when you walk into, I don't know, a high school and you'll see, you know, the the black Jamaican kids over here and the Chinese kids over here mm. and the white kids over here. And maybe there's one table where there's a little bit of mixture going mm. on. That was my experience in multicultural Canada, right? Mine and too. When people say, oh, oh you know, uh, this and that, I said, well, they understand each other. Yeah. You know, if I say, yo, Jed, what going, what, what the thing, how the thing said, I want to be able to speak what is natural to me and speak in a, in a, in a manner of either language or patois or dialect that others that, I don't have to fix myself to talk to you. <laughs> now, I do think that that if people recognize that, they'll realize that why we galvanize into groups. Right. That portion to me doesn't trouble me a lot. No, not doesn't trouble me either. Yeah, I get it. I understand I get it. it. I understand it. Mm -hmm. The part the part that troubles me is now the 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 exercising of judgment. Yes. And that, um, well, I don't understand you, so what you say must mean nothing. Now we're in a problem. Now we have a problem. Now I, we have a too. problem. And that and that scenario is uh, an overwhelming one that repeats itself time and time and time again. It's the world we live in today. We are now uh, moving back into this sense of um, a separation, you know, caused by this idea of trying to be connected. It's such a weird anomaly so I, I i ask you um a key question as i see you as a very a very wise person is how how do we combat that how do we create a legitimate realistic um tool practice ritual circumstance philosophy that allows us to understand yes 
it's okay for us to galvanize in our groups, but maybe we should do a greater effort of, of not making a judgment of that for which we are not knowledgeable. Well, you, you, the answer is in your last statement. Mm. It's about acquiring knowledge. Yeah. And it's about, so for me, like when my boss talks to me about that stuff, I say, well, we need to do a better job of educating people. There you go. You know, like we just do. Like, like I don't profess to know everything. But but I don't actually judge someone because I don't know it. Like you know what I mean? Mm. Like a lot of the 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 things happening in the world they around based on what you said, ignorance. Like yep. just not knowing. Yeah. So we need to find ways in which we can educate people. But the problem with it is that there's people who just don't want to be educated. Yes. And that's and so how do you get those people to move? And I think my from my own personal experience, it's always bringing people closer to an experience makes it really hard for them to ignore that experience. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I don't go to dinner every day with my leadership team. Right. But every day I can tell them a story about how I experienced the world mm-hmm. and how I'm uh, my experience in this world. Every day I can tell them something, I tell them. Yeah. Like I remember telling them when I first became a senior manager and we were going to a conference in Montreal. Okay, we came back and on the way back, um, it ended early and everybody wanted to go get their flight, like, changed their flight to get on the earlier flight. Because, you yeah. know, from Montreal to Toronto, for those who don't know, there's a flight like every hour out yeah. of the Montreal airport to Toronto. So, and those flights aren't filled. So, yes, if you have a six and you get to the airport at four, you just go to the counter and say, hey, you know what, can I get on the four o'clock flight? And they usually, you know. Yep. So they said, that we're all going to do that. And I said, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to go get dinner because my flight's at eight. And I'm not going to be putting myself through that embarrassment. And the woman said to me, what are you talking about? I said, well, I've been traveling in program development. I traveled all across the country for nine years. <laughs> and I've never been able to do that. Because every time I try to do it, they're like, no, sir, it's going to cost you X amount of money. And I'm going, okay, really? Like, I'm a frequent flyer. Like, no, sir. And I say, forget about pain. So the lady said, no, 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 no. That's why I won't. Come on, come on, come with me. We're going to go do it together. Okay? And so she goes up and she speaks first and she goes, hey, you know, hey, we're here early. Our flight's not till seven. But, you know, is it possible we can get on the five o'clock flight? She's right here. And there you go. Let me see your ticket. And I go down to Okay. It gives her a thing and she's now on the five o'clock flight. So I'm right behind her. So I go next and I tell her the same story. You know, hey, you know, we're here early. I'm with, I'm with this woman <laughs> and um, wouldn't mind getting on the five o'clock flight as well. And she said, well, sir, that's going to cost $185. Straight away. I said, pardon me? Yeah, it's $185 to switch your ticket. And I said, okay, but you just switched my coworker's ticket. You didn't even mention that. Well, she is a points person. She said, how do you know that? She goes to me the way, well, how do you know she's not? Because if you have a certain amount of points, right? Because we're aeroplan members. Like this year. I said, okay, just for the record, since you didn't even ask me for my aeroplan point, and I know you didn't ask her because I was right behind her, but I actually have far more aeroplan miles than her because I was traveling the country for nine years. I have a crap load of aeroplan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Facts. So it can't be that. And she goes, well, sir, I can't do it. And she would not do it. Yeah, insist and no, it's totally and Wouldn't completely Unless wrong. I paid. And so I said, I'm not paying. So I went and sat down. And here's the kicker to that story to me, the part where I had the most problems. So we come to work on Monday now. So remember, I didn't get on the flight. Yep. Yeah, I, I they out. went on. Get to the, get to work on Monday. And this woman who's on my leadership team is telling all the others, you should see what happened, Nick. It's unbelievable. They're very, and like really stick it she's up for outraged, me. Like, you know, yeah. And she's outraged. And I said, 
Yeah, but you still got on the plane and left me at the fucking airport. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you couldn't have been that outraged. <laughs> you know what, Nikki? I insisted you came here. Maybe I I'll just skip it and I will fly back with you. Let's go get that dinner you were talking about. Absolutely. Yes. And now, and here's the joke about it. Yeah. When I was in program development, yeah. and I told you about those other two men, Harry yeah. Franklin and David Downey, you know how many times that happened? And you know what those guys said? Well, we'll, we'll just wait with you at the airport. Never once was it a debate with them. That's it. And that's why we stopped doing it. We would just say, okay, let's go on the Aircock flight, and we'll just go wait and get our MB. And they never once did those two men get on a flight early and leave my ass at the airport. Yeah. Never. And this woman got on the flight, left me at the airport. It was the one, most vocal one. And had the most, to me, the audacity to come, like, talk to my the, the team on the Monday and talk about what a horrible experience I had. But you know what? When everyone heard that story, and especially when I broke it down the last part, when I said, yeah, but you still got on the plane and left me at the airport. That's when it came home for some people. Yeah. And they're like, holy. And they said, you go through that. All I said, dude, all the time. Yes. To the point where I don't ask anymore. Yes. I just, if my flight's for seven, I just come and catch up my summer clock. I don't want to no argue with no people about nothing. You know what I mean? I don't want to give anyone a reason to chat to me about nothing. So this is important. The reason why is because if, if you guys have been paying attention, you'll realize that I haven't really dove deep into some very critical issues. Example, uh, when Nikki spoke about being in school and being a teacher, allowing him to move through school. Let's think about that move through school without learning I know. for the purpose for you to play on a high school basketball team <laughs> in Canada. And we're not even talking about, this is before at the chance of the, the, his playing could bring money to the school. You know, this is just because they would win. No, I, I, I and I don't want to go there because it's a slippery slope for which there is no way to dig yourself out of the hole. But I would like to say how in our now moving into the, I think we did bright, we did famed, shining part. How have you maintained your mental health oh. and well-being, <laughs> being um, in this space, doing the work that you do at the level that you're doing it? And I, I want to make it real, real specific with you. In the example that, in your surroundings of what you've built, those who know you, they know your integrity, they know your work ethic, they know your deliverables, they know that your ability to create, I would say quite honestly, profit for your employer and the respect that you've garnered there to go out into the world on their behalf and work and still be subjected to the very thing that you have done such an incredible job to try to expand <laughs> in your home base. This, to me, is part of my struggle to have done certain, in my opinion, or by the opinion of the numbers, in massive impactful works in the world and still suffer with ignoring, is what we're talking about, mm -hmm. the plight of people's ignorance. How do you maintain your mental health and well-being to continue to smile and be uh, um, a pleasant man in the world? Well, I will say this, is that my mental wellness has been a priority. It's one of my actually, it's actually one of my strategic objectives for my team mm. this past year. Uh, because I think my mental wellness took a hit in the last year. I really struggled in the past mm. year. And I've struggled because 
of a few things. One is I just think the weight of all the work we're trying to do in this company uh, and some of the the things that we face through the course of the year, and some of it I can talk about, some I can't, but it's very, um, it's hard for me to reconcile some of the things that have happened with my own beliefs. Mm-hmm. And what keeps me here, honestly, is the support of my boss. Wow. Like, she's she's amazing, and she's just very supporting. And it keeps me here because there's some things that have happened that, you know, quite frankly, you know, I've been really tested me. And some of it's with my own team. Like, mm-hmm. it's not all just work. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I, I've had to, I mean, many years ago, I met a woman, um, amazing woman from Halifax. And she's uh She's uh, like a social worker, but she's more than that. You know what I mean? And I met her because I went to go hear her speak to a group of people about how they can um, kind of reconcile their feelings around what happened with George Floyd. Yeah. So I went to this thing and I heard her speak. And the moment I heard her speak, I have to get her to do work at CBC. So mm-hmm. I brought her in to do some work at CBC. The black woman from Halifax, amazing woman. And I take the time to chat with her probably once a month. You know what I mean? I take um, a whole bunch of, I took a bunch of courses on psychological harms of racism mm. just so I can understand it better for myself yeah. and how to deal with it. And these are, this is all within the last three or four years. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like this is, this is some relatively, because it's been heavy the last three or four years. It is. You know what I mean? Um, and then having to relive your own experiences all the time. Like, you know what I mean? Like me talking to you about that airplane incident, like I'm angry when I talk about it. Yes. It's unresolved. Like it's, like I'm angry. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I sh- we shouldn't have to put up with that. No. You know what I mean? And it's just blatant. Like you dealt with the person right in front of me. Yeah. And you know she's my coworker. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just telling me no. Yeah. For no reason. And yeah. it's not that one person. So I, you can say, well, that's just one bad apple. But I am telling you that's happened to me multiple times in yeah. many different airports across this country. And so what it is, it's like, there's almost like there's some memo written somewhere where we do not upgrade yeah. <laughs> black men. Like, you know, I don't know if that is. I'm making that up, of course. Yeah. But it feels that way. Yeah. Because it's, it, you never once have I got put on an earlier flight. Not once. <laughs> okay. And I'm traveling for nine years yeah. on this company. Okay. And you just accept it after a while. And so after a while, that weighs on you. Yes. It's like these small little. They're just sticking nicks at you. That yeah. keep, and, they, and, and the more Death you get by them. by a thousand Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so it, for a long time, I internalized a lot of it. And you know, you kind of like you do, you laugh it off, you smile it off, you kind of like, but it's hard to do that. The the more we get into the way the world is today, it's harder to laugh it off. Yeah. Because you, you would hope that we have progressed. I've been in this world since nine, I was born in 1964. Hmm. I'm turning 60 this year. Hmm. And I would want to believe that the world is better today than it was when I was born and I'm having a hard time reconciling that. Yes, sir. And that's what's driving me a bit kind of like putting me in a pretty tough space mentally over the past few years that like, what world do we live in? Do you have any practices, any practices that you use? So my wife who loses her mind, like just around a week ago, I was going through a really, you know, just, just not in my, not feeling well. And I just, I just turned up my music in my house. I'm a, I collect vinyl. I have around 40,000 pieces of vinyl in my basement. Wow. And I went downstairs, 
And I just started pulling tracks I like. And I just lined them all up. And I just started playing music. And I'm here in my basement singing and playing music. I'm not a good singer. So trust me, it's not like I'm. <laughs> my wife is losing her mind. Can you please shut the door? But I did that for around four hours. Mm. Four hours. And I came out of that and I felt so good. You know music what I mean? therapy. Like I just felt good. And I, and I like all kinds of music. So it's like it's a whole cornucopia of music. But it's a wide range of stuff. And. I love music, and so that's one of the things I do. I I I I, I kind of embed myself in my music because yeah. as a DJ, I have a huge uh, reservoir of music I can choose from, and I have wide taste. And I just know what I need at what given time. I talk to people. I talk to my son every day. Talking mm. to my son's great therapy for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I'm trying to help him not make the mistakes I made, and so it's just great. And we have an amazing relationship. That we just talk every, every day. That dude calls me every day. And we just talk about random shit. And it gets me through, you know what I mean? So. I want to give something to you. Mm -hmm. You have inspired me my most of my adult life. And I want you to know that... Um, you are not alone. There is a, there is a we, people talk about the aftermath of the pandemic and whether you're for or against vaccinations or whatever it may be, people are talking a lot about it now, especially with the number of people who've been sick over the, mm -hmm. the this particular winter. And one thing that, that lands with me is that I lost my control during that window of time. Mm -hmm. All these years fighting the good fight, standing in the face of these microaggressions, yeah. macro as well, but the microaggressions. I call them subtle acts of exclusion. There you go. Based on a woman named uh, Miss uh, Rana who just, but that's what I call it. I read her book and it's a, it's a book called Subtle Acts of Exclusion if you want to read it. Because they're not microaggressions. No. They're really just subtly ways of saying you don't belong here. You don't belong here. Yeah. So. I remember, and I want to speak to this because I'm hoping anyone listening that has thoughts on how to um, release the internalization of the suffering caused by these acts. Maybe they'll have thoughts and maybe they'll contact. But what I have found is, and I want to publicly send this apology. I was on a call. As you know, I did the Unmasked Fear uh, campaign during the pandemic and it was the largest uh, activation of black portraits in the history of Canada. And I hired a publicist to make sure that we were able to talk about it. And the day that uh, um, uh, Ms. Fenella Bruce, and the day that she, she really went to the hilt, she did her job. And I paid my own publicist to do this. And uh, it was part of Artworks TO and all the rest. And the day that we went uh, live with the, with the press and the media, the the um the website was down. The actual it wasn't even down. The activation wasn't on their website. Mm -hmm. So you're listening on the radio, watching on television. First thing you do when you hear about the link, you, you go, go and you look. It's not there. And I was on a call and I um a conference call, and I I was like, there was a number of other things. Um, uh, the former, I, it's amazing to say this now, the former Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, Her Honor Elizabeth Dudswell, did me the great honor to come down and speak at the opening. Um, no proper crew there to film her. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, when I arrived, I was uh, hemmed up on a plane because they wouldn't let me get on the plane because they claimed that my uh, COVID test was uh, uh, expired, which was false because the test was in California time and we were flying on the East Coast. So they thought it was three hours or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was late. So they hemmed me up at the airport. I got here and there was a man that was doing a sample work of my face uh, on the window so we could see what the, the vinyl uh, would look like. And him and the gentleman from the place uh, were having a conversation as if I wasn't there. Not only is it my work, it's my face, right? So no, <laughs> so no, um, it broke me. Yeah. It broke me. I was on a conference call and I told him flat out, I think that you people are racist. I've never, I would never do that. Mm -hmm. Even if that's my thought, I keep it to myself and I find a better way to constructively resolve the scenario. Now, this wasn't coming from the top down right? because my dear friend, I uh, hope she's still my dear friend, Iris Namani. Um, she was amazing. She's been amazing the entire time. But in that window, I broke. I remember being on that call. I remember just saying to myself, I hung up. Mm -hmm. And in that, I would say to you, you're not alone. There is a, there was something about that moment in time. The combination of first and foremost people dying um, of asphyxiation and literally less than, I think about two months later, I think it was 77 days, and maybe just past two months later, here we watched George Floyd saying, I can't breathe. Yeah. I think the physical challenge, the, the emotional challenge, for everyone around the world was difficult, but I think for people that have been suffering underneath this level of high level of racism and all the ways that it shows up in the world, I think it was a little too much. Yeah. I think that awareness as though everyone was thinking that, oh, it's great for us. Now everyone knows us. And I think that clarity that people could see it, um, finally see what we were seeing, and I think it opened up some wounds. Yeah, that and it did. I speak to you directly that you are not alone and I speak to you directly to let you know that we are in this with you. And uh, I'd like to give you one practice that we'll do right now for the audience. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you're going to sit and you put your, your feet flat on the floor, hands on your uh, lap. Now uh, the impact of breathing is, this is important because it's short and it's quick and it can happen the moment you feel like you're under duress. Mm -hmm. Back by science, I've taken a few different ideas and compiled them together. But one of the, the, the great scientists behind this is uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman. It speaks about this particular exercise of the sympathetic side. So what you're going to do is you're going to take a deep breath in. I'll show you how. At the end of the breath, you're going to just take a last breath as if you only had no more space. Mm -hmm. And then you slowly let it out through your mouth. So in through your nose, out through your mouth. It looks a little bit like this. So we're only going to do just four of them together. So anytime you get stressed, anytime you're under pressure, say, excuse me, I need a moment. Mm. And this is what we'll do. Ready? One, mm. two, three, here we go. last breath is take your time yes how you feel good yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's um, good it is um 
backed by science and data, and it will work every time. You don't need uh, three, four hours the meditation, an hour, 60 minutes. That's great. You can do that too. But this immediately deals with lowering your heart rate, calming the mind down so that the parts of the mind that serve you can come back into working. The fired up parts get to pause and you can do it anytime, as frequently as you want on any given day. First thing in the morning, end at night, about to go into a serious meeting, just left the meeting, it didn't go well. Whatever it may be, it's available and it, it's quick. Moving into this part, I want to ask a question because I know when you talk about how you're in service of others that it helps a lot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we'll wrap up because this is so fantastic. I could do this all day with you, my brother. So how does someone who has been listening hear the incredible um, work that you've done and they dream to follow in your footsteps in any one of the wonderful places throughout your career where you've had success? Uh, and let's say, for example, since the podcast is about creatives, particularly you work in uh, with Metro Morning. Mm-hmm. Like I want to be the producer of, you know, mm-hmm. and the biggest radio show, national, local, whatever it may be. Can you give them a practical manner of steps that they can move in the right direction towards achieving that goal? Yeah, I mean, my my way there was unconventional, you know, because I studied math and ended up as a journalist. But I would suggest that if you're school still you know i suggest the thing that thing that really helped me uh do well in this space was i actually did volunteer for the school radio station okay i actually volunteered for the school newspaper end up getting a paying job the newspaper being the editor for okay. it um i think you got to write every day you have to read every day and and not just i mean read whatever you like write and like and write gibberish doesn't matter just write yeah you got to get in the act of writing because there's a discipline about this work like when you're an associate producer for a current affairs radio program, you're writing every day, two, three, four scripts a day. You're doing research every day, trying to figure out like what's the story we're trying to tell, what perspective, which guests we're going to get on. You got to do the research for the host. It's a lot of, to me, what people think is boring work, mm. but it's you're learning. Yeah. So you got to have a learner mindset. And if you're open to learning a lot and being open to other opinions, other views, other perspectives, then you'll probably be successful in this space. Once you do all that, when you apply for work, you, you should go to journalism school, even though I didn't do that. I think it helps because you get the what I call the fundamentals yep. of journalism that will always help you and ground you yep. in the work you do moving forward. I acquired those fundamentals the way people like me and you get those things, trial and error, figure yes. it out, you know, and then we, we, we get it and then we know, okay, well, I'm good. I get the fundamentals. But it's easier to go to journalism school and get it. Trust me, okay? Now, you can learn on the fly, but it's just easier to go to journalism school and get it, you know? Um, Take any internship you can. Most broadcasting organizations offer internships, but when you take that internship, don't just go work in the newsroom. Go work in current affairs. There you go. Go like like, And you can make that choice. We have interns here every year who come in. We got like four sets coming. I just talked to a group of them last week, Monday, Mm -hmm. a group of eight of them. And now it's my counsel to them. Don't get stuck in the newsroom. You know, yes, you need to learn that, but you're learning that in school. So go do things you're not going to. You're not going to work on a radio program in school, mm-hmm. on a current affairs program. You're not going to go work in the investigative unit in school. Like, go take those opportunities because those things are going to help you. You're going to get an understanding, you know. So that's the advice. If you're going to do an internship, take it, but do 
do something unconventional in the internship. Don't there just do the thing that you can get out of school. Do the thing you're not going to get out of school. There you go. So if you go to a newspaper, like let's say you're going to Word Magazine where I worked, don't go to Word Magazine and want to be a writer. Go to Word Magazine and maybe you want to be a photographer. There it is. And take pictures. You know what I mean? There or you know, like, like really try and stretch yourself. You're, because you're speaking about expanding your storytelling. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like stretch yourself. You know what I mean? Because you're not going to get these opportunities. When they come, we got to take advantage of them and, and maximize them. Yep. You know what I mean? Because if you're going to go just to go write stories, you do that every day in school, at journalism school. Like, yep. I tell people, like, I, I know you can do that. I want to know. You got to push yourself because you can't get fired from your internship. So push yourself to do things you're going to learn <laughs> that are going to make you better. And then when you get to those places, ask a lot of questions. Ask a lot of questions. Yeah. Like you're a journalist, so get in the habit of asking, but ask a lot of questions. You know what I mean? And meet people, network. Like, if you come to work at my show, I'm going to take you to go meet the people at The Current. At, I'm going to go take you to meet the people at Q. I'm going to, I'm going to take you because you need to meet people yeah. and network yourself and yeah. let people know what you're doing. You know what I mean? And know, know what you're about and know who you are. And it also shows people that you're interested in the work. Like you're not just in this cubbyhole here. You're, you're interested in the whole work because you never know where your opportunity might come. Yeah. Like I had no idea when I left university that I'd be the senior producer of the number one morning show in the country. Mm-hmm. Like I had no idea, no knowledge of that. But I, I, I opened up myself to a whole bunch of different opportunities, wasn't afraid to try different things, yeah. was open to learning new things, yeah. was open to failing. Yes. <laughs> We're going to fail. Yes. It just don't keep failing the same way all the time. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And so those are, that's my advice. And then the other thing is take initiative. Like, just take initiative. Like, if you are someplace, like, pitch ideas and do different things and just take initiative. Don't just wait for someone to give you something to do. Yeah. So those are the simple things. And then when you get into the places, I really do believe that um, networking, meeting people, um, expanding your own horizons, but be in a learner mindset and be open to new ideas, new concepts, new things, and you will be far, go far in this world, and especially in the space of journalism. And so I think that's my advice to young people, you know, um, take it for what it's worth. <laughs> I super appreciate it. We're going to wrap up with one last thing. Um, not a question from me, just a thought from you. Is there anything that you'd like to share? Um, I will just say this. Um, I have hopes that the world that we live in is going to be better one day. Like I really do. Um, I remember always people say, "Let's you know, remember the good old days? They weren't good for everybody, people. Yeah. And they're still not good for everybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? And... I just think we as a society can do better. I think we need to learn to um, accept, like you said, I like the way you said it better than I'm going to say it, but accept that we're different. Yeah. And actually find, to me, some joy in those differences that we have. And and that requires us to be in another place to me where I really do believe that. I just think one day, that one day we'll live in a world where, you know, like you said, that me and you are hanging out because... Not only are we different, but we have, there's something about that difference that makes us similar. Yeah. And then we find some kind of connection through those differences. And I think we find too many times to find disconnected from differences, but we need to find connections through those differences. And I think one of these days I will live in a world that like, that's like that. I, I, I'm, I'm being hopeful, aspirational. Yes. That's what I'm trying to be. So hopefully that's, that's what I'll leave you with is that, um, you know, find joy in our differences and find a way to connect those differences to our own experiences so that we can actually you know, actually just not hate people, man. I don't understand hate, so it's a very difficult, different emotion for me. I don't understand it. 
My dear friend, you um, are always an inspiration, mm -hmm. and and I say that earnestly. It, it it has meant more to me than you know on this trip. Just so you know, I have arrived here after I've come here straight from visiting my mother's gravesite for the first time in seven years, and um, people like you are the force that have allowed me to recognize after all the time. I have never called Toronto home since my mother passed away. Mm -hmm. And it's people like yourself that have shown me on this very impromptu journey um, that it is my home. And I'm super grateful for you, man. I love you for it, brother. Know oh, that I love forever you too, more. man. And you're inspiring me every day too, I man. appreciate that, brother. Thank you. Well, as you all know, uh, I don't often mention, uh, um, I don't start the podcast with talking about who our sponsors are, but it is important to express in this instance that one of our affiliate sponsors is, is BetterHelp. And we hope that for anyone who wants to have an opportunity to engage in therapy, because mental health is not a matter of um, something's wrong. <laughs> mental health is the equivalent to physical health. You do the physical work, you get a better body. You do the mental work, you get a better mind. So we hope that you guys would check that out. Shout out to Cedulis Consulting, who is also a sponsor of the podcast. But really a shout out to, uh, to Nikki and to the great people here at CBC. Um, what a journey we're on. We love you. My name is Robert Young. And this is Robert Young's bright fame shining, the podcast where creativity meets wellness. And we'll see you again. Looking forward to next time. Amen and Ashe. <laughs>